Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for this blessed day. Thank you for the return of spring. Thank you for the chance that we have to sit under your word, to receive your sacraments. We bless you for nourishing your people and pray that your Holy Spirit would open hearts and eyes and ears and minds that we might receive what you have for us this day. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Anyone here a Rolling Stones fan? It's okay, you can admit it in church. I'm not a fan, but I got to see Mick Jagger when I was 10 or 11 years old, not in concert, but he was actually filming a movie just up the street from me with Emilio Estevez. I was really a fan of Emilio Estevez, Young Guns 2, and so I got to go up there, and I actually got to meet Emilio Estevez, get his autograph, but I saw Mick Jagger from a distance. Well, I'm not really a fan of their music, but I know of one of their songs, and I think it perfectly captures the human condition. I can't get no satisfaction, because I try, and I try, and I try, and I try. What is it about human beings that we cannot seem to stay satisfied? If we get it for a moment, it doesn't seem to last. Think about that in your life. Are you satisfied? And I mean really deeply satisfied. Think about the different areas of your life. In your career, your your work life, are you satisfied? In your friendships, in your community. If you're single, in your singleness. If you're married, in your marriage. If you're a parent with with kids, in your family relationships, your relationships to those children and, and what they're doing with their lives. What about financially? Are you satisfied with how God is providing for you? What about spiritually? In your walk with Christ, are you satisfied? In your relationship to a church, if this is your church home, are you satisfied with King of Kings? What about physically? Are you satisfied with the way your body looks? The way your body functions with your health? I don't mean to suggest that any aspect of dissatisfaction we might feel is always a sin. I just think that it's important that we pay attention to dissatisfaction because it is part of the human condition. And even our bodies, our physical makeup tells us this. One meal may satisfy. One drink may quench our thirst, but it won't be long before we need more food and more water. And it's actually our dissatisfaction, if you think about it, that drives us to action. It drives us to walk to the water fountain and get a drink. It drives us to prepare another meal. As Mick Jagger says, we keep trying and trying and trying, but we can't seem to get that satisfaction. Or if we get it, we can't seem to keep it. Some years ago, there was a man who was driven by a persistent dissatisfaction. And he went looking for satisfaction in various religious philosophies and a very immoral lifestyle. Neither satisfied. Eventually, at the age of 31, aided by the prayers of a godly mother, the man's eyes were opened to the power of the Christian gospel. He was converted. And he would go on to be a leader in the church and a very important theologian. His name is St. Augustine of Hippo. 
1,600 years ago, he lived in North Africa. Some years after his conversion, he wrote a classic autobiography and devotional work called The Confessions. And in his opening chapter, he uses a different word for dissatisfaction, but I think it gets at the same thing. He calls it restlessness. Every human being deeply desires something that we cannot seem to find, but we don't stop trying to find it. We are restless until we can find it. Well, Augustine, in his understanding of God and his Christian faith, he understood the root of that restlessness. And in his opening chapter, he penned these words to God. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find peace in you. Have you heard that quote? Probably his most famous. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find peace in you. You see, some 1,600 years before, Augustine had solved McJagger's dilemma. We will never stop searching for satisfaction until we find it in God for whom we were created and in whom is true satisfaction. As much as I love that sound, I'm wondering, is there something I can do? Should I switch to a different mic? I can. Would that help? I turn this. So many wireless signals running through our brains. All right, away with you. Come to our gospel lesson this morning. There is a story about a thirsty woman. Like Augustine, she had been looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. But one day, she meets a man who offered her what no other man could offer her. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to John chapter 4, and we will pick up the story. It starts with Jesus and his travel pattern, the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, Because he was beginning, or not he, but his disciples, to baptize more people than John, there was growing opposition. He had been in and around Jerusalem, Judea, and the south, uh, but yet, because of this opposition, he needed to flee into the north, into Galilee. Well, there's two ways that people typically traveled from Jerusalem in the south to Galilee in the north. You could either go down the hill, kind of into the desert, and then up through Jericho in the Jordan River Valley, or you could go through Samaria. Dun, 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 Samaria. (laughs) Jews and Samaritans, there was no love lost between them. A lot of really faithful Jews would opt to go the longer route, really, because they didn't want to go through Samaria. But in John 4, verse 4, we're told that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Had to do it. Well, geographically speaking, that's not true. He didn't have to. He could have gone the way of the Jordan River Valley. Seems John is aware of a deeper plan at work. The necessity of passing through Samaria was not geographical. It was theological. Jesus had a divine appointment waiting for him. Well, on his journey through Samaria, he comes to this town called Sychar, and Jesus got tired. It's a great reminder, he's not a superhero. He's fully man. He got tired, he got hungry, just like us. Well, he sits down near a well, not far from the town. And this well happened to have a lot of history behind it. It was a well that Jacob had dug centuries before, but was still in use at Jesus' time. It's actually a well that is still there today in the basement of a church in the West Bank. 
Well, his disciples had left Jesus alone at this well. They went into town to buy food. It's about 12 p.m., and a woman comes to the well to draw water. See, that was a bit unusual. The women usually came in the cooler parts of the day, the morning or the evening, but here's this woman coming alone in one of the hotter times of the day. Something is not quite right. Jesus engages the woman by asking her for a drink. By doing so, he breaks a couple of pretty serious social and religious norms. First, a man associating with a woman, especially a woman that has sort of a bad reputation, we're going to come to see, that was frowned upon. Second, she was a Samaritan woman. Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. They had common roots, but the Jews believed that Samaritans were like a half-breed. They had intermarried with foreigners years before, and their worship had become severely corrupted. They'll go on to talk about worship later in the passage. Jews would not even share utensils with a Samaritan because it would make him ritually unclean. Interestingly enough, the woman is aware of both of the social norms. In verse 9, she replies, How is it that you, a Jew, ask ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Even the woman knows we really shouldn't be speaking, let alone sharing a drink of water. But Jesus has something more important in mind. And he's not going to let religious custom stop him from offering this woman what she deeply needs. And so he responds, verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. Now, if you were here last week or you just remember a chapter earlier in John, Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus, the Pharisee. And he's sharing with Nicodemus these deeper, profound spiritual truths. But Nicodemus is missing the point because he's taking Jesus literally. He says, wait, I have to enter my mother's womb a second time? How how is that going to work? Well, the same kind of misunderstanding is happening here. The phrase living water could just simply mean a, a fresh source of water, like a spring. So she didn't get the spiritual meaning. She just thought he was talking about a spring somewhere nearby. Listen to her response, verse 11. Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? And then she asks a question. It's easy for us to skip over. Are you greater than our father Jacob? I think she kind of meant that maybe as a little bit of an affront. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. There's some irony going on in the story. See, what Jesus has said is pretty bold. I mean, surely if there was a spring nearby, this woman would know about it or Jacob would have known about it. But he's saying, oh, I know about some other living water and she misunderstands him, but she's kind of rising to meet the challenge. Not only does she point out that he doesn't have anything even to do this well with, much less you don't know of some other source because this is Jacob's well, Jesus. It was Jacob, right? Later named Israel, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel who gave us this well. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? I want you to pay attention to that question. If you like to underline your Bible, underline that question. Verse 12, it's a loaded question, friends. 
sets up some of the tension in the narrative, which will later be resolved. This text is very much about revealing the identity of Jesus through whom the whole nature of religious worship, Jews and Samaritans, is going to change. Everything is going to change because of this man. And particularly for our conversation today, the possibility of human beings being satisfied is going to change because of this man. Are you greater than our father Jacob? If you've been following the story of Jesus, if you know what's been happening, if you've read the other Gospels, you know that that Jesus has been reliving the story of Israel, the nation that came from Jacob. Remember some of the details of Jesus' life. After he was born, where did he go? Down to Egypt as a refugee so that God could call him out of Egypt as his son. Sound familiar? In his baptism, Jesus passed through the waters and went into the desert just as Moses had led the people of Israel. And then in the desert, Jesus was also tempted just like Israel, some of the same kinds of temptations. And yet unlike them, he trusted his father. He did not disobey. And then as he begins his ministry, he gathers 12 disciples around him, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. Not a coincidence, Jesus is making a statement. He is reconstituting the people of God around himself. He is saying, I am new Israel. I am Israel as it always should have been. And as new Israel, he is opening up new possibilities, including this possibility of human beings finally being able to quench their ancient thirst. Are you greater than our father Jacob? You better believe he is. But that's not what Jesus says. That's not where he goes, not yet. He keeps the focus on water. He's got this woman's attention. He's engaged her thirst. He's pressing into that need. So we read his response in verses 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Yes, that's the human condition. That's Mick Jagger. Physically, emotionally, relationally, vocationally, we will be thirsty again and again and again. But, Jesus says, I love the word but in the Bible. It is a gospel word. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This man, this tired and thirsty man sitting by a well is not what he appears. He is greater than our father, Jacob. He's able to give us a water that satisfies because he doesn't just give us a sip or even a cup or even fill up our jug. He gives us the source. He gives us the source. That's what we read in verse 14. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water. He places an inexhaustible source inside of us, and it wells up with what? With life. What kind of life? Eternal life. Literally, life belonging to an age. And to really get our understanding around eternal life, we, we need to understand that concept of there was the age in which they were living and there was the age to come. And Jesus is saying, I'm bringing you life from the age to come. That's why it's going to satisfy. It's not like the water of this world that you have to keep drinking and keep drinking and keep drinking. I'm bringing you uh, the water of new creation, the water of resurrection, the water of a world finally at peace with God, the creator. 
that water from that age, Jesus has brought us in the present. And he said, drink and you will be satisfied. You will have life, the kind of life that doesn't wear out or run down or decay or die, or die. the kind of life that leaves us fully satisfied. A few chapters later in John, we learn more about this living water, this spring of water. Jesus tells us that it's the Holy Spirit. Turns out the living water, the source, is a person, the third person of the Trinity. It's God himself. It's the source of all life. In the Nicene Creed, we confess that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. The Holy Spirit is given by Jesus to the church and to the individual believer to become this spring of eternal life where our thirst can finally be quenched. But not only is it just a thirst-quenching thing for us, it's an overflowing thing for us. That's what wells, that's what springs do. They overflow and it cannot be contained, this eternal life in us, drinking that we are of it now. It has to flow outward so that a world thirsty can also drink from it. And we watch that happening with Jesus and this Samaritan woman, this woman who is outside of all the religious boundaries, and yet here she is taking a drink from the water of life. Well, what does the woman think? In verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I don't think she gets it yet. She still probably thinks Jesus is talking about some hidden spring nearby that she didn't know about. But in her response, we see this deeper desire of the human heart. Sir, give me this water so that I don't have to keep coming again and again and again. Maybe there's a hope in her that if she just had a different place to get water, she wouldn't have to come alone and ashamed to the well in the middle of the day when no one else would be around. She's open, she's willing, she might not understand, but she's hearing what Jesus is talking about and she wants to receive. Wouldn't that be great if that's all that was required? Jesus just told us the source, boom, we drank of it and we were satisfied. Done deal. But it doesn't work like that, does it? You know from your life, and now we read in the story, that there's something that gets in the way. Before she can drink the living water, she has to face some things. In the words of Bishop Tom Wright of England, if you want to take up Jesus' offer of running pure water, bubbling up inside of you, you will have to get rid of the stale, moldy, stagnant water that you've been living off all this time. Well, this woman, like all of us, has some stagnant water in her life. We read in verse 16 and following. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now it's coming to light why this woman is thirsty, why this woman is alone at the well in the middle of the day. She has a reputation for loose living. She's gone through five husbands and is now involved with a man who is not her husband. That is her stale, moldy water. Not only does it make her sick, it keeps her thirsty. 
Why wasn't she satisfied with the first five husbands? Perhaps some of them died, but there seems to be an indication in the text that these marriages didn't end just with death, but with divorce. Maybe she's done with marriage. Maybe that's why the man she's with now, she's not married to, because she's done with the institution of marriage. But she's not done with men, is she? She still has that need for companionship, for sexual connection, for security. Was she finding it in her current man? Was that quenching her thirst? I would say that marriage is one of the hardest places to get and to keep satisfaction. If you don't believe me, look at the statistics in our culture. We're never going to be completely satisfied in our spouse. It's painful. It's scary to realize that this other person to whom you've pledged your life won't completely satisfy your loneliness, your sexual desire, your need for connection, for respect, for affirmation and security. Sometimes married couples come to these realizations in in moments and it leads to a lot of disillusionment and despair. It's happened to Paisley and I, our first year of marriage. No honeymoon period for us. We stepped into an incredibly difficult year, a lot of disillusionment and a good bit of despair. The future seemed dark. We had very little hope. We didn't have some experience to fall back on. We just couldn't see how things are going to change. It seemed like they're always going to be like this. That's what happens when we get stuck in those places of dissatisfaction. We can't even imagine what satisfaction would be. And so hope dries up. By the grace of God, we held on. More importantly, he held on to us. And by the grace of God, some circumstances changed and things got a little bit better. Not overnight, but year after year, they got better. And then we had kids, and then it was just smooth sailing after that. (laughs) Marriage is good. Marriage is a place of satisfying love and enjoyment. But it's also a place, probably one of the major places, if you are married, where dissatisfaction can run rampant. And if we don't get a hold of that dissatisfaction, if we don't do everything we can to address it in our marriages, it will become a poison to our marriages. In our sin and selfishness, we can turn the goodness of marriage into just another stagnant pool of water that doesn't satisfy. To those who are married, let me just say, you know it already, your spouse is not perfect. But believe that even more deeply than you might. He or she is broken. They're profoundly marked by sin and he or she will never make you completely happy. See, husbands and wives can't be each other's fountains. They will drain each other dry and grow bitter. Marriages need the Holy Spirit. They need that inexhaustible source of new life from which husband and wife may drink again and again and again and then flow over into each other what the Holy Spirit is providing in one's soul. Marital failure and sexual brokenness. That was some of this woman's stale, stagnant water. Maybe we can relate. Maybe ours is different. But we all have places we go to drink again and again, don't we? Where is that for you? Do you know what it is? Sometimes we're not even aware. That's the first step. Become aware. And if you need to find out, follow the well-trodden paths of your dissatisfaction. 
See where your restlessness often leads you, and that will be one of the places that you're going to drink. Don't always expect it to be an overt sin. It's not necessarily. Like marriage, it can be something very good that has turned stagnant. Vocational satisfaction, huge issue for a lot of men and women too. Being a mom and trying to get it right. It's a good desire, right? We want to be good parents. We want to be good moms. We want to love and serve our kids, but that can turn stagnant in a woman's soul. It, it can turn a woman to exhaustion, it can weigh them down with either pride that, yeah, I've gotten it right, or shame and guilt that I, I haven't gotten it right. What about the desire for wealth and worldly success? How about the pursuit of health through diet and exercise? Not a bad thing per se, but ironically, that can even become stale and unhealthy. Where is the restlessness in your life? Where are those well-trodden paths to those wells that just don't seem to really quench your thirst? I said earlier that having dissatisfaction is not necessarily a sin. Just in and of itself, having some dissatisfied feeling is not necessarily a sin. It depends on where we go with it. Jeremiah chapter 2, and my favorite verses, God says this to his people. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is feeling dissatisfied automatically a sin? No. I think it's part of being human. It's part of living in a fallen world. Sin happens when we forsake God as the fountain of living water and we go instead to some broken cistern that can hold no water. Being thirsty is not a sin. Running to a stagnant pool again and again and drinking from it and then wondering why we're still thirsty is not only a sin, it's foolish. Sexual attraction and desire, not a sin, a good gift from God. Running to the stale waters of fantasy, adultery, or pornography, that is moldy water. Longing for a spouse, not a sin. It's a good desire, something we can rightly pray for, but believing that a spouse, whether it's real, the one we have, or imaginary, the one that we hope to have, is going to be some fountain for us, that could turn him or her into a broken cistern. Longing for real security, true pleasure, that's not a sin, but chasing after material things to get it is a dry well. In this life, in these bodies, we will experience all sorts of dissatisfactions that just aren't yet, aren't yet fully satisfied. And those desires are not necessarily evil if we bring them to God, the fountain of living water. I think this is so powerfully illustrated for us in the prayers of God's people contained in the Psalms. They, they knew deep levels of dissatisfaction and they brought it where? To God. They brought their questions, their longings, their fears, their hopes, their dreams to him and saying, how long, O oh Lord, how long will you forget us forever? That's a legitimate prayer. We can bring our dissatisfaction to the living fountain. Next week, we're going to continue in this story and see what happens to this woman, so come back and see. We're also going to see, as Jesus talks with her, he's going to identify two major areas where the Lord meets us and satisfies us, especially in this life, things that we should be engaged in in our days.
But we began with Augustine, and so I want to close with him. He has identified the core restlessness pretty well, I think. He's identified the reason for it. You, God, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find peace in you. But knowing that doesn't instantly satisfy us, and it didn't instantly satisfy him. It's not easy to pull away from the broken cisterns and the stagnant pools. It's not even easy to recognize what they are. A couple of chapters later, Augustine cries out to God with these words. Oh, that I might find my rest and peace in you. Oh, that you would come into my heart and so inebriate it that I would forget my own evils and embrace my one and only good, which is you. Until God inebriates our heart with the Holy Spirit, we will be restless. We will be dissatisfied. But once our hearts are intoxicated by his spirit, we will stop traveling these well-trodden trails to the dry wells and the broken cisterns. And we will instead discover that inside of us and inside the church is this inexhaustible source of deeply, deeply satisfying life. I want to close a little differently than we sometimes do. We confess in our creed that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. I want to give us a chance to act on that. Maybe you're tired. You got some broken cisterns and pools in your life. You, you know what they are. You're tired of going to them. Or maybe you're, you're not even aware of that, but you just want to drink more deeply from the living water. We're going to have a short time of ministry. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come to minister to us as a church, as individuals. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask him to come. Eric and Laura are going to lead us in a Rolling Stones song, and then we're just going to let the whole... No, just kidding. Not a Rolling Stones song. As they play, if you want to sing, sing. If you want to stand up as a posture of receiving the Lord, stand up. If you want to sit in your seats quietly and just hold your arms open like this, do that. But whatever posture is the most comfortable for you, would you join me in asking the Spirit to come to refresh us with the living water in your life, in the life of our church? Let's pray.